Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Genesis chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife, Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that you can, I can sit, sorry. Uh, one of the things that we <clears throat> enjoyed about um, what we did with uh, the um, Advent series was having families come up and um, read the passage. And so what you're going to get an email this week and what we're going to do, we could do this is have like, I don't know how we're going to do it, like a sign up genus or something and, ha- and ask you to fill out a week and if every family did like one week, we'd fill that up quick, like just one week this year when your family is the one that comes up and reads the passage uh, for the week. That makes sense? Okay, so you're going to have a chance to sign up for that. We really need you to sign up for that, or else no one will be here to read it. And then what are we going to do? Okay. Uh, we are starting this series in a portion of the book of Genesis, and it's focused on God's relationship with Abraham. And... Um, but, like, a lot of it just has to do with the relational nature of God and about what that should look like um, for us. One of, the, one of the reasons that Christianity, there's a lot of reasons that I'm a Christian and believe in faith increasingly. One of them is that this stuff was recorded 3,500 years ago, and it, it's this, the book was written 3,500 years ago, and it still reads me like a book. Like, I find it so true to our experience. And one of those aspects is the relational nature of God, because God shows himself in the beginning to be intensely personal, and that should probably be more surprising than it is. It's probably something we take for granted. Um, So other major world faiths, you know, Buddhism doesn't, my understanding is like an atheistic religion. There's no God, and the goal is the end of desire, or the end of suffering, and you end suffering by ending desire, which I think there's positive things about Buddhism, but all that sounds kind of bleak to me. Um, Hinduism has thousands, if not millions, of gods. Um, Islam has a personal god, and it's the god of Abraham, but that god, uh, like, rings very different than the god that we read about um, in our Bible. This god uh, is, creates us, is present with his creation, creates us in his image, calls us into his work, um, is concerned with our lives, you know, in a way he's making a list and checking it twice. And yet, since 
we've been naughty, sends his son to take the consequences of that because he loves us so much and wants to be present with us forever. He's intensely personal. And yet, um, in my experience, in your experience, there's a lot of times where he seems really distant and doesn't seem super personal. Uh, Abram's account is one of the longest, most personal accounts. And so part of what this gets at is, um, do we experience God that way? Are we meant to? Um, are we called the way Abram was, the way Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and Deborah or Ezekiel or Mary or Peter or Paul, are we called in that way? Do we experience God in that way? Is that, that a thing for then or are we stuck in the now and now it's not the same? Um, and underneath that really is, I, like I think you're here and you're here um, I think most of us would say we long, we're here because we long for the closeness of God and the presence of our God in our lives. And so this series leans into that. The graphic, and Tiffany came up with this, and it's, it's um, great, it's about Abraham following a God who keeps his promises. And that's what it's about. It's about following God, and it's about the promises God makes and God keeps, but not always keeping them in the way and in the time frame that we want him to. So Genesis 12, which is where this starts, the end of 11, the beginning of 12, is um, a real transition in the book of Genesis. Uh, it moves from a largely global story to a largely personal story. It moves from what was a complete train wreck, the first 11 chapters, to a little bit less of a train wreck, but their family's still kind of a train wreck for the rest of the book of Genesis. And the trajectory of the story changes here because God steps in with a plan. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, um, the... the, the um, the story of God and humanity hasn't gone well. Like God, in the beginning, he creates Adam and Eve. Uh, he puts them in a garden. He's present with them. He walks with them. He tells them, um, he calls them into his work and gives them purpose and tells them, I got, you know, one, one rule. Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know good and evil. Um, you're not, you can't handle that, but I will give that to you on an as-needed basis, which is a call into relationship. I will give you what you need. They eat from the forbidden tree. God removes them from the garden. He guards the entrance to the garden with an angel and a flaming sword so that they can't get back into the garden and eat from the other tree, the tree of life, because he says that they eat from the tree of life will be stuck with them like this forever, and that would be terrible. And so we can't do that. And so we... Um, he moves them out. Adam and Eve have two kids, Cain and Abel, and one of them kills the other. Like, there's probably not much worse that can happen in your life than you have two kids and one of them kills the other one, right? This is chapter four of the book. Uh, if the Bible's meant to tell us anything is that the problem is really bad and really deep and has lots of consequences. Ten generations later, in the days of Noah, God says, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all the time. Every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil all the time. Like things haven't gotten better in 10 generations. They've gotten much, much worse. And so God sends a flood to start over, except he spares eight of us, Noah and his family. And, you, and Noah's a right, and I'm, not, I'm still not clear on this. Noah is a righteous man, but he's not that righteous. And it says he found favor in the eyes, he didn't earn favor, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as soon as he gets off of the ark, he plants a vineyard because he wants to get drunk. 
It's like he watches the thing grow because he's just waiting. And then he, he gets drunk, and then his son does something to him that is unclear to me, but it is a sexual type of sin, and it involves shame, and it has not gotten better. Um, the problem is still there. Now, sometime after Noah, in Genesis chapter 11, it says, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So this is the story of the Tower of Babel. It is a complete anti-God movement. It is a rebellion against God. So in the previous 11 chapters, God has repeated this like, fill the earth. He creates Adam and Eve and blesses them and says, be fruitful, multiply, and go and fill the earth. Uh, after Cain kills his brother, God says to Cain, you will be a wanderer over the face of the earth. But what Cain does is settles and builds a city for himself. Um, after Noah gets off the ark, God repeats what he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, get out of here, fill the earth. That's what he wants them to do. But here on the plain of Shinar, they settle and stay. They say, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. It's top in the heavens. We'll make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Right? This is how the story's written. It's an anti-God, anti-movement movement because God told them to move and they keep deciding to stay. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's worth noting that they build a tower with its top in the heavens and the narrator makes the point that God has to come down to see their little, they didn't quite make it into the heavens. God has to come down and say, good job, guys, nice tower. Um, like you looking at your kid's Lego set, you know, and saying, way to go, buddy. Uh, never think that God doesn't have a sense of humor and that he isn't a little sarcastic. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they've all one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. He, dis he dispersed them, because that's what he wanted. Uh, this is, Babel is the beginning of Babylon. Um, the city of Ur, where Terah and his sons set out from, was likely very close um, to this. And so in those first 11 chapters, we have a problem and a pattern. We screw things up. We fail to trust God repeatedly. We put ourselves in the place of God, and that leads to some form of tragedy, and God refuses to give up on us uh, over and over again. Even in even the first words of the, of the Bible, um, it says, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters. There's always been a little bit of a mystery of why he starts with that formless and void because he's the one that's making it. But he speaks light into the darkness. On the first three days of creation, he puts form where there is no form. In the next three days of creation, he fills that which was void. There's a problem. He solves it. Adam and Eve eat from the tree. Before he kicks them out of the garden, he declares curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent. And one of, those, one of the things he says is, I will, to the serpent, I'll put enmity... Um, between you and the woman, uh, between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. 
and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And this is the first promise of the gospel of redemption, and it's right there in Genesis 3.15. And from that point, Jewish people are waiting for the seed of the woman that is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. They see that promise, and they're waiting for it because God has said it's going to happen. And Genesis in the Bible is full of genealogies in part because they're waiting to figure that out. Um, years ago, I got to go to Israel, and one of the things that they set up for us was this lady. It's a guy and a woman came from something called the Temple Treasures Institute. So in Jerusalem, there's the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock, the third holiest site of, in Islam, is there. Because the temple hasn't been there since the Romans tore it down in like 71 A.D., but the Jewish people still want to rebuild the temple. And this group has everything ready to rebuild the temple, all the instruments to start the sacrifices from the Old Testament. As soon as they can get the Dome of the Rock off the Temple Mount, they want to go back up there and rebuild it, which is kind of fascinating in itself. But one of the things the woman said I won't forget is she said, and we're looking for the king, the Messiah that we can put in place, and my husband could be the Messiah. Now, I don't think I've ever heard a woman say that her husband could be the Messiah, you know? Like, I think a couple months after marriage, for most people, that ship has sailed. There was one woman I used to work with that said, um, in a staff meeting, she's like, my husband is the closest thing to Jesus that I know. My wife will not be saying that to you, okay? It's like, this is okay. But, she, but that stuck with me. But what she meant was not that her husband was so great. It's that they knew the genealogy of her husband thousands of years later, and that her husband was in the line of David, so her husband could be the seed of the woman that is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Like, they're still tracking that stuff. This promise was thick for them. Uh, and God says, I'm going to fix this. Uh, Cain kills Abel, and God brings Seth. Like, we're going to keep going. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart becomes only evil all the time, and yet God spares Noah the flood and renews his covenant with mankind. The people migrate to this plain to build a tower to the heavens, and God confuses their language and disperses them, but he's going to move forward. And so God's showing himself to be like one of those. When I was a kid, one of my Christmas gifts was a, like a blow-up punching bag that has like a weight in the bottom, sand, you know what I'm talking about? So you punch this thing, and it goes down, and you think, oh, I got it. This thing's broken, but then it slowly comes back up. And mine was like a smiling clown or something like that, so you wanted to punch it. And so you punch it again, and it goes down, and it comes back up, and that's kind of how God is. He's like, you're not going to ruin this. Uh, I'm going to take care of this. And Abram, chapter 12, is the beginning of a new plan. And this plan is going to take some time, but this plan is going to work. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Um, these are the generations of Terah. A little Bible geekery here, but Gen Genesis, when you start reading through Genesis, you see that phrase, these are the generations of, repeated. It's repeated 10 times. We have, um, what, 50 chapters to Genesis, but Ge Genesis is actually like 10 chapters, and it's the, these are the generations of, and it's like a new story is started every time he says that. And so this series is really chap, gen, chapter 6 of Genesis according to those um, generations. So Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Here's another Bible geekery thing. Is that, um, so there's 10 generations from Adam to Noah and 10 generations from Noah to Abram. And Terah and Noah are parallel. So Noah has three sons and Terah has three sons. And so these, you don't need to know that, but these things are worth knowing because the structure of the thing 
is more amazing than you could imagine. If you are following Jesus, you should become a Bible geek, which just means you should be curious about what your Bible says. This is a little public service announcement. A, a group of people just finished a two-year Bible reading plan, and we have done a good job in the past, but not in the recent past, of encouraging you to get on a plan together as a church through YouVersion. Um, there are about 10 people that made it through that plan, and I ask everybody's advice about what we should do late in the week, and I got 10 different opinions on what we should do. So uh, we'll have something out soon about starting a plan probably. Yeah, we'll have something out soon. But th that's as an important a habit as you can develop is one of just spending time with the Lord um, through, through the Bible. So um, Tara fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. That's going to be Abraham and Sarah in a few chapters. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah takes Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. This is a question I don't have an answer to. Um, so here's a, I have a map of this. Uh, um, you can see the Persian Gulf down in the lower right-hand corner, and you can see Ur. That's most likely the Ur that they're talking about. There's another one that it could be. Instead of going, and the land of Canaan is the promised land. Instead of going straight across the Arabian Desert, because they probably would have died, they go up the Euphrates, Tigris, river valleys to Haran, which is up there, and then they come back down. This is the Fertile Crescent that you learned about once when you were in grade school and then promptly forgot about. That's what it is right there. And so that's the, the journey that they're taking. Why is it that did Terah, why did Terah go from Ur to Haran? Like, did God call Terah before he called Abram, and Abram is just picking up the baton for Terah? I don't have any idea. It probably doesn't make a difference because he doesn't tell us, but it's worth it's worth asking questions about your Bible. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay. There's three things that I want to talk about with this call to Abram. And this is the first one. God called Abram to go and not to stay. He called him to go and not to stay. And what you see in the first 11 chapters is this pattern of God saying go and the people deciding to stay. And so that's what he's doing. Um, I'll get to this in a few minutes. I don't think he's calling everyone to go physically. But I do think, like, there's a metaphorical way in which we're all, we all want to settle and God wants us to keep moving. Like, we want to settle for the, for the kingdom that we have or the kingdom of this world in the language of the Bible. But there's a kingdom of God which is better which we're called to go to, and we need to keep going. Um, this, this book is called The Gift of the Jews, and I read it probably 15 years ago. I, I read a lot. I take a lot of content in. I don't remember a lot of it. I, I'll never forget this because what he talk, a lot of what he talks about is how in the days of Abraham, um, everything, here's, here's how he says it, all evidence points to there having been in the earliest religious thought a vision of the cosmos that was profoundly cyclical. So it's like what comes around goes around, and we can't get out of this cycle, and there's no use trying to. And so, like, we just have to accept that things are going to keep happening the same way that they keep happening. And Abraham's call to go was a revolutionary, like, 
God saying, no, 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 we're not stuck in this. I'm going to do something different. Just trust me with it. And so he goes through this about like their temples. And so Ur had a temple to the moon. Terah is a word that likely means some derivation of moon. Um, Joshua says, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods, which is, well, that's all they had. So they worshiped other gods. So they were probably moon worshipers. And Ur had this temple to the heavens, and they had, a temple, they had temples to the heavens because they're trying to get closer to God because they realize the divide between the heavens and the earth, and what happens up there is what happens is different than down here. And so they, you know, they could look up in, in the skies and see what was going on. They didn't have light pollution. I imagine it's probably amazing what they could see. They didn't have phones. We look at phones. They looked at the stars. And in the stars, they had constellations. And so they saw a drama playing itself out in the stars over and over again. But it would be over and over again because, you know, the earth rotates. So they're, they, like, see it happen, and it comes, and it goes, and then it's gone. And then it comes back, and it goes. But the same drama plays itself out over and over again. Uh, the moon has always been a fascination. My wife is a, uh, works on an ambulance and does crisis stuff, and they talk about it. Like, when there's a full moon, they know stuff is going to go crazy. The word lunatic is there because it's luna, it's moon. Like, uh, and so they would see the moon, and they would see that the moon, like, is born, and then it what, waxes, and then it's full, and then it wanes, and then it's gone. And then it is born again, and it waxes, and it's full, and it wanes, and it's gone. And it happens over and over and over again. Honestly, they would tie that to a woman's cycle, and they would they just see birth and life and death, and like it all happens over and over again, and things changed a lot slower then than they did now, and so they just had a sense of we're not really going anywhere. Same stuff, different day. Like that was it. And God says, no, we're not just going to do the same thing again. We're going to do something completely different. Don't just stay where your fathers were. Don't just collect all this stuff for yourself. Don't build a city and build a tower so you can stay. Go. So that's part of his call. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And so God called Abraham to give God control, not to keep control for himself. Uh, Go from your idea of how everything should be and your control to make it the way that you want it to be um, into trusting my idea of how things should be and the way that that's going to happen. God says, I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. You contrast this to the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And God says to Abraham, no, I will make a name for you. Um, You are going to build a city. I will make you a great nation. You will figure out a way to bless yourselves. I will bless you and through you bless the entire world. I have something bigger and better than you could possibly imagine. And that's what he's calling Abraham into. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God called Abraham to trust that he was a part of a a plan bigger than Abraham could comprehend. And so the end of that blessing that God is, is promising him is that all the families, just imagine that. What could that possibly mean to Abraham? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what could be going through Abram's mind? 
God calls him to go and not to stay. Um, this, he's an historian, uh, not a theologian. And the stuff that he has about that age is fascinating. And so he says this is Samaria, the Sumerians, and that time period was their golden age under the ruler uh, Hammurabi, who was the world's first emperor. Um, this is the Code of Hammurabi. The Epic of Gilgamesh is written in this time period. And Canaan, where they're going to, the promised land, now Israel, um, it says, Canaan was a hinterland of the Semitic tribes who ate their meat raw and didn't even know how to bury their dead. That's an insult. So he said, no one whose family was established at Ur would have thought to leave it except for a similar city. So what we're witnessing is a migration in the wrong direction. Um, another historian said this too. Ur and Haran were like New York and Los Angeles. They were two of the three biggest trading centers in the world at that time. And so in our language, Canaan is kind of like flyover country. Now, I'm from flyover country. I like flyover country. You know what I mean? But it was like, I don't know what we would say. Maybe, I don't want to insult anyone here, but like maybe rural Kentucky or Appalachia, you know, is how we would view it. And you're coming from New York and moving there. Um, his command, the Hebrew word for go, is like, go forth. He, this guy says there's an insistent immediacy to that, that we don't, it's like, let's go. Like, that's what we would say to him. And so this is a, I'm going to read a long section, or a page or two section from this book. He says, Abraham went, are two of the boldest words in all of literature. Like, it's a radical thing that he does. They signal a complete departure from everything that has gone before in the long evolution of culture and sensibility. Out of Samaria, a civilized repository of the predictable, comes a man who doesn't know where he's going but goes forth into the unknown of wilderness under the prompting of his God. Out of Mesopotamia, the home of canny, self-serving merchants who use their gods to ensure prosperity and favor, comes a wealthy caravan with no material goal. Out of ancient humanity which from the dim beginnings of its consciousness has read its eternal verities in the stars, comes a party traveling by no known compass. Out of the human race, which knows in its bones that all its striving must end in death, comes a leader who says he's been given an impossible promise. Out of mortal imagination comes a dream of something new, something better, something yet to happen, something in the future. The gift of the Jews was progress. The idea that that this could be moving forward in a direction of hope. He says, if we'd lived in the second millennium B.C. and could have canvassed all the nations of the earth, what would they have said of Abram's journey? In most of Africa and Europe where prehistoric animism was the norm and artists were still carving and painting on stone the heavenly symbols of the great wheel of life and death, they would have laughed at Abram's madness and pointed to the heavens where the life of the earth had been plotted from all eternity. His wife is as barren as winter. They would say a man cannot escape his fate. The Egyptians would have shaken their heads in disbelief. There's none born wise. They, uh, they would say, repeating the advice of their most cherished wise men, copy the forefathers, teach him what has been said in the past, that he will set a good example. The early Greeks might have told him the story of Prometheus, whose quest for the fire of the gods ended in personal disaster. Do not overreach, they would advise. Come to resignation. In India, 
he would be told that time is black, irrational, and merciless. Do not set yourself to the task of accomplishing something in time which is only the dominion of suffering. In China, the now anonymous sages would caution that there is no purpose in journeys or in any kind of earthly striving. The great thing is to abolish time by escaping from the law of change. The ancestors of the Maya in America would point to their circular calendars, which, like those of the Chinese, repeat the pattern of years in unvarying succession and would explain that everything that has been comes around again and that each man's fate is fixed. On every continent, in every society, Abram would have been given the same advice that wise men as diverse as Heraclitus and Lao and Siddhartha would one day give their followers. Do not journey, but sit. Compose yourself by the river of life. Meditate on its ceaseless and meaningless flow, on all that is past or passing or to come, until you absorb the great pattern and have come to peace with the great wheel and with your own death and the death of all things in the corruptible spear. This is an amb it's a new ambition. It's a different ambition than anyone has had. It's a surrendered ambition. It's not his ambition. It's an ambition that that's God's ambition that he's co-opted into and that he's accepting. It's a mysterious ambition that he can't possibly know the end of or the beginning of without trusting this God who's leading him, who is the author of that ambition. The go is a radical call. Uh, he called Abram to give God control, not to keep it for himself. So he says, listen, Abraham, this isn't about you making a great name for yourself. I will make your name great. I will make your name great. The Tower of Babel has always been a strange story for me. Like literally, you're going to make a tower into the heavens, you know. Um, there's a couple things about that. One, a couple people pointed out that um, the brick was a new technology for them. So, like, they had rock before that. You can't build it. You can only build a tower so high with rocks. You know what I mean? But you get a brick that's in a square. It's Legos. Then you can build whatever you want to. And so that was technology for them. And they used it to try and achieve some sort of greatness and freedom. And that's what we've always done. Like, we have iPhones. They had bricks. We have AI. They had bricks. Same stuff. Uh, and at 9... On 9-11, why did they go after the towers? Like, that, that didn't make a dent in the companies that were in the towers. It's because the towers, towers still represent something, right? We're still fascinated with towers. Um, I grew up in Milwaukee. We would go to Chicago to the Sears Tower because it was the tallest building in the world. I kind of want to go to Dubai to see that huge tower that they have there. And so towers still, like, it's a, we make a name for us. You know, like, look what we can do. Uh, they symbolize our might. And Babel and Babylon, it's every kingdom. It's Egypt, it's Assyria, it's Babylon, it's Persia, it's Greece, it's Rome, it's Britain, it's the USSR, it's America. It's like the anti-God kingdom. It's that we can do this for ourselves. Just say a word about this that I don't know if this is useful or not, but like the whole America is a Christian nation thing doesn't, you know, there's a lot of Judeo-Christian thinking people that founded America on, on principles that I think came from God and that's why things have gone well because we, we trusted what he said. Man, I hope this isn't 
I hope the kingdom of God is better. I love America. There's no place I'd rather live. It, it pains me when people crack on America. We've been a blessing to the world in a lot of ways. This is not the kingdom of God. <laughs> like the kingdom of God has so much more than this, right? Don't settle for that. And there's a lot of things about it that are anti-God. It's every kingdom that thinks, this is it. Let's just stay here. Let's gather here. Let's settle for this. Instead of go and find the kingdom of God and make it better. And so he says, I trust me. I will make a name for you. He's giving God the rights to his reputation, to his legacy. It's like an NIL deal for Abram, right? Um, he's giving it to him. And you can make a name for yourself. I am... Um, my, uh, my kids over the last week or two, It's a Wonderful Life came on because it's always on, right? Like it's constantly. You go to, on TV right now, It's a Wonderful Life is on somewhere because it's Christmas. And they never watched it, so they started watching it, and they got hooked. Um, I was doing a 3,000-piece puzzle that my kids got me to keep me occupied, I guess, but they were watching it, and I was kind of listening to it in the background, and it still got me at the end, man, uh, but they never watched it, and they're like, man, this is a great movie. I was like, why do you think we're, that's the movie that we still play 80 years later? And it's because we all relate to that guy at some level, and we're all questioning our choices. And do, did we do the, is the right, is the grass greener? Could we have taken a different path? Um, this week, it's this going through this stuff and some other things, I got on LinkedIn and looked up some of my classmates from um, grad school to find out what they're doing. One of them is the vice president of a pharmaceutical company. One of them is the vice president of a consulting company. One of them is the vice president of a health system in Columbus. And it got me thinking about, like, paths. But we, we have the same thing that he does. Like, I will make your name great. You give me your reputation. You don't worry about what other people think about you. You worry about what I've called you to. And I'll give you a legacy. Abraham, man, he lived in relative obscurity. We'll see this. He was a foreigner, a missionary, barely surviving at points. He had to wonder a million times if he had read the tea leaves right and taken the right path. Um, and yet, 4,000 years later, we're talking about him. If he had stayed in Ur or Haran, he probably would have had a lot more money, a settled life an easy life, and no one would have any idea who he is. There's a singer that, um, named Rich Mullins, who he passed away like 20 years ago. He was, he was great. I loved his music, and I loved his person. Like, he was weird. So he had nine albums. They all made it. He, went, he won Dove Awards. Does anybody remember what a Dove Award was? And so he went to the Dove Awards ceremony and, like, was going through the serving line for dinner, and he thought the whole thing was, he was, I bet he pissed some people off. He was, he just got mad about the thing. So he went in the back, got a uniform, and he started serving people, like, instead of doing the thing. He had a board that took all his money, and he had to be worth millions and millions of dollars. They took all his money, and they paid him the average worker's salary in America for that year, and that's what they gave him, and they gave the rest of his money away because that's the way he wanted it. He ended up living in a Indian reservation in New Mexico, teaching kids music and learning how to build a mud hut to live in. He's a weird guy. Um, but he, I remember an interview where he said, if my life is motivated by my ambition to leave a legacy, what I'll probably leave as a legacy is ambition. If my life is motivated by my ambition to leave a legacy, what I'll probably leave as a legacy, as a legacy is ambition. But if my life is motivated by the power of the Spirit in me, if I live with the awareness of the indwelling Christ, if I allow his presence to guide my actions, 
to guide my motives, those sort of things. That's the only time I think we really leave a great legacy. And that's the choice that Abraham has made. And God called Abraham to trust that what he was part of a bigger plan than he could comprehend. And so all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. He could not, I just can't, he can't imagine that he could conceive of what that meant. But this is picking up the storyline and saying, okay, I'm going to fix this problem, and you're going to be a part of that. And you can't see what that is, but trust me with it. And ultimately, he's talking about Jesus. Uh, Abraham is going to have a son. His son's going to become a family. The family's going to go to Egypt and become a nation. Um, the nation is going to be freed from their slavery, which is going to be a metaphor of our freedom from sin throughout the Bible. They're going to go into the desert so that they can go into the promised land. They are going to get the law, and God's going to say, this is what my kingdom looks like, and they're going to fail and fail and fail to live out that law. He's going to give them prophets to say, you failed, <laughs> and years and years and years, and they're going to experience the consequences of that and go into exile, and then they're going to come back, and for 400 years, God's not going to say anything. And Paul says that the law was a tutor that leads us to Christ. It all sets them up to understand this is a problem they cannot fix. And then Jesus shows up. And he lives according to the law, lives it out perfectly, lives the life that we're made to live, depends on the Father completely. People who don't even believe that Jesus was divine are still talking about him because his life was so magnificent because it's life. And he says, the only, like, I, you, the only way you do this is through me. And the same power that raised me from the dead after he dies on the cross for us, experiences the consequences of our sin, and rises from the dead and says, that same spirit is going to be in you, and that's how you live this life and live out my kingdom. And that's what this is talking about. And when Jesus, before he ascends, says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And when at Pentecost, the nations are gathered in Jerusalem, um, the Jews come from all places who have been dispersed because of the exile. They come back, and instead of making one language many languages, at Pentecost he makes many languages one language. He reverses everything that's happened. That's what he's talking about. And it all happens because this. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He has no idea, but he goes. Now, is this for then or is this for now? Like, we're not Abraham. Abraham's not us. But man, as I thought about this, has much changed in 4,000 years. Like, do we not still feel like we're pretty stuck in the mud and things are just going over and over and over again? Same stuff, different day as a bumper sticker now. It is what it is. Like, how many times a week do you hear that or say it? And we can't change it. In 2024... Man, we're going to get, we're probably going to get Biden versus Trump again. Oh. Or whoever, does it matter? Does it not seem like the system is broken? Like the war in Ukraine or in Gaza could end, but it's, one's going to pop up someplace else. We have more deaths of despair. We have more division. Where does hope come from? And I'm just going to read some passages from the Gospels. Because now when I read these, I think, man, this is not too different. This feels like what Abraham was called into. Mark chapter 1, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, starting his ministry, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Trust me instead of trusting yourself. Go into something that maybe you don't understand, but I'm calling you to. For what will it profit a man if he stays in Ur and gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? Mark 10, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. He's calling us out of something and into something. Okay, this next one. Just hang with me for a second. A buddy of mine, he sent something to me, and it was a couple screenshots from um, something called the Gospel by Gen Z. Has anybody seen this? Okay, so it's like, it's like the Gospel in Gen Z language. Before you get mad about this, because some people are not happy with it, it's not, I'm just, I'm just, it's like reading the Message Bible which I like the guy that translated that, but it's not a group and whatever. You don't, but um, I read this week about William Tyndale. Has anybody ever read about William Tyndale? He's the guy that translated the Bible from Latin into English, and they killed him for it. Now, they tried to translate it from Latin into English because people didn't read Latin anymore, but they translated it into Latin for people that didn't read Greek and Hebrew. And then the Latin version was called the Vulgate, which is the vulgar, which is the common because they tried to translate it into the common language, but when he tried to translate it into the common language, they killed him for it. So people always get resistant to that, rightfully so. So this is like the common language for Gen Z. And I've got four teenagers, one not quite a teenager anymore. So I speak just a tiny bit of Gen Z, right? They're shaking their heads back there. They're shaking their heads. But a couple weeks ago, I said something like, Dad, you're getting it. So just... This is the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes by Gen Z. Then Jesus entered his preaching era and started streaming. When the chat filled up, he began to cook, saying, I really like this, dub to those who aren't thirsty for this mid-life. Now, dub is a win. Good. Dub to those who aren't thirsty for this mid, who aren't settling for this mid-life, for they shall live their best life. What is that? Where are you going? He's not a teenager anymore. He's aged out of this. Dub to those, <laughs> dub to those who take L's from this life, for they will receive an everlasting dub. Dub to those who don't do others dirty, for they shall secure the eternal bag. I like that one. Dub to those who want help passing God's vibe check, for he will say, bet. Never mind. Okay, Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is Paul. Maybe it would be Abraham. Like, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Like, these callings aren't too different than the callings that we have, and the decisions that he made aren't different than the decisions we have. Go. Don't settle for the kingdom of this world, for the thing that you can build, but trust that I have a better kingdom even if you can't see it. And it's not an outer kingdom, it's an inner kingdom. Jesus said, 
um, how do you say it? The kingdom of God is not like here or there, but it's in us. It's the presence of Christ in us. And every day we have to renew that commitment to go. Trust that I know better than you what a great life looks like. And man, going could mean a million things for you, right? Going could mean investing less in your work and more time in your family and your church. Because your priorities, going could be your priorities. Going, honestly, if you're lazy, it could mean investing more in your work because it's for worship and service to the people around you. It could mean loving your neighbor well and praying for opportunities to tell them who Jesus is. It could be being generous with your resources for the sake of God's kingdom instead of using them to build your own kingdom. It could mean, it could mean moving across the city or the country or the world because God called, he's called you into something new. It could mean that. But trust him and play your part in my plan to bless the world around you. I'm going to finish with one um, last scripture that I don't have in the notes, but or and the band can come back up. But this is Hebrews 11. There's a bit about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then the author of Hebrews says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And I think that's a direct, like, contrast to Babel. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder isn't him, us, but whose designer and builder is God. He trusted God for something better.